Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. Frodo and whoever. Oh my God, I don't stop it. I don't know any of their names where they, you know, mean names where they drop the ring into the fire. And that's we're on like a, a, a Tolkien quest. That's what you got from our theme song. That's yes. It's I mean, I'm not mad about it, but I. <laughs> um, It works so hard on this. I mean, it's not that wonderful. I made it. But the, like I worked with someone who worked so hard on Not it. that I actually <laughs> made it.
<laughs> okay, what a, I feel like we're in um uh an episode of the hours. Not an episode. Oh, that was a movie. No, that's perfect. The hours. Like it, the hours where Virginia Woolf doesn't end up at the bottom of the creek with rocks in her pocket. Nicole Kidman. And Ed Harris doesn't throw himself out of the window and, you know. If there were one year that they could have given out two Oscars, it should have been the year that Nicole Kidman lost to Halle Berry because they both deserve that Oscar. Every time you think of Nicole Kidman, I always just think, oh, you should have gotten it for Moulin Rouge. And then I remember that that's the year the Halle Berry one. Mm. So I think, oh, yeah, if only we could have. Was she nominated for Moulin Rouge? Oh, she was. Mm. It was little Lauren was devastated that she lost to Halle Berry. I mean, she was so good. Well, you know me and my Nicole yeah. Kidman problem. Um, um, here regardless. <laughs> here huh? regardless. Here regardless. This, okay, so I'm glad that you brought up the hours because it has Philip Glass who did the score for this. That's what I was, that's why I was saying. Perfect. Okay. Philip Glass. So I was like thinking about music and I was like, what has this like incredibly repetitive theme? And it's ostinato. Mm -hmm. And that's like what Philip Glass does of like, and it works so well. And I feel like that. Because I was like, what is whiteness? It's just like these themes that just keep repeating over and over and over again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I was, I like went to this amazing artist and I was like, hey, I'm looking for a theme song that's like built on ostinato because that is whiteness. These same mm-hmm. things repeating over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful person, Brian Stevenson, was like, oh, say less. Got it. And I worked with this like really talented composer. And he like came up with all of this really amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now when I play it for people, they're like, whoa, the only time I've ever heard ostinato is in these like really epic film scores. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yes, one. Lerman, is that you? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, that's one. But then two, also like we're still, we're talking about race and racism. Like right. I don't want this to be like, oh, hey, this doesn't matter. Right, like it's lo-fi hip-hop beat. I mean... Sorry, I put a lot of thought into this music. Yeah, I see that. I don't... So I don't... I I guess (laughs) when I hear my voice, I don't think ostinato or (laughs) Mm. deep... You know what I mean? I feel like I hear like What's that thing on Instagram? That song like bing 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 whatever that that song is. Um but I think it's it's beautiful. It is very lovely. I think so too. Thank you. I do I think we're just trying to in culture building, this is it's a huge task. It's not some little tiny thing that we're trying to stay away from. And in some ways, like if we want to extend that metaphor, yes, we are trying to take this ring of white supremacy and white shame and throw this into the fires of mm-hmm. Mount Doom. Um, Release Gollum from... Yeah. And yeah, like race and racism is some serious work. No, it's serious, yeah. And I think we're also two very silly people sometimes. Oh gosh, so silly. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I just didn't want to make light 
No, no, no. Doing? no. And it, it definitely doesn't do that. Um, it's definitely. I get it. Do I'm so, so <laughs> awful. <laughs> but... Your candor. <laughs> wow. Oh, I am my mother's daughter. Bless her heart. I mean, it speaks to exactly what's the <laughs> at the heart of the matter, which right. is something that, like you said, is repeated over and over again and something that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of care and time to rectify. Right. And yeah. it's a lofty goal. And I don't think we're expecting ourselves to fix it all. Mm -hmm. But we're reaching towards making a way so that others can join in the work and and together we can fix a problem right a pretty huge problem so i think it's perfect is what i'm trying to say thank you you're welcome thank you because they worked really hard on it <laughs> you didn't make it i know <laughs> I am a social worker by trade and by training. And one of the very first things that you learn on the ground running is you have to meet your clients where they are, not where you want them to be, not where they were, but where they are walking through your door that day. And it's going to change constantly. And so you have to always be mindful and always be present as to who and how someone is showing up to uh, become more happy, healthy, and productive humans in this large co-created world. Uh, and we're all defining that for ourselves. We're defining that for our families, for our communities, for our neighborhoods. And the more clients were coming in, having conversations of race and racism, I realized not only in the folks that I was serving, but also within myself, that these were actually trauma responses uh, that we were having as white people talking about race and racism, irritability, hostility, depression, anxiety, shame, grief reactions, feelings of vulnerability, emotional detachment. These are trauma responses. These are delayed emotional reactions to trauma that we can get stuck in. And yet the larger social narrative that we were having around race and racism is that white people are the traumatizers, not the traumatized. So I was trying to figure out how we reconcile these two pieces until I began to understand perpetrator-induced traumatic stress, uh, but then also intergenerational trauma and how that shows up in our bodies. And so while we were founded on the principle that hurt people can hurt people, white people are hurting and our healing is possible, we're really driven by the work of undoing traumas. Uh, the traumas of white people and the traumas of the white experience uh, and holding that trauma-informed work can have radical implications for how we understand 
compassion, love, empathy, understanding, and patience. This work is not about creating excuses. It's about better understanding where white people are coming from so that we're meeting people where they're at and investing in healing as prevention work. Our society has created a fairly solid single-story narrative about whiteness and white people, and it reinforces the desire to shame and isolate whiteness and white people. And to that, I simply ask, is what we're doing actually working? More white people voted for President Trump's Make America Great Again campaign in 2020 than in 2016, and CRT became the wedge issue of the 2021 elections. I'd argue that it's not working and that new approaches are needed. And when we say we, we mean white people here at the Spillway. I'm not trying to have this conversation with anyone other than white people. As a white person, I need to stay and want to stay in my lane. I'm not trying to do, nor do I intend to tell folks of color how to act, think, or behave. These conversations and actions are for white people. And because white organizing has historically been about maintaining dominance, white people talking with other white people has happened behind closed doors, in back rooms, or in secret societies. And the spillway is not that. All of our materials, method, and praxis is freely available on our social media channels and website. And to break this theory down and this action down, we're going to have many teach-ins to explore the underpinnings of the spillway. In the first season of the Spillway podcast, we're going to unpack perpetration-induced traumatic stress, intergenerational trauma, and the origins of the Spillway. And we'll have longer episodes where we interview folks working through their experiences of being white. Sometimes that will look like thought leaders and scholars in the field, and other times it will be in groups of everyday white folks just trying to make sense of the changing world as white people. We cannot fit the entire experience of whiteness and white culture into a single season of the Spillway podcast. If there's a specific or even general topic that you'd like to see addressed, explored, or unpacked in season two, don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at thespillway.org. I-N-F-O at thespillway.org. That's a little bit of our roadmap and where we're headed in season one. For now, let's return to our inaugural chat, where I am joined with my co-pilot, Jenny, and you can get to know your crew for this journey. telling my therapist uh about the podcast and they're super excited about it uh, but they were wanting to know who we we're talking to and so i was telling them some of our guests and i was telling them what one of them was saying about preciousness mm-hmm. and <laughs> they stopped and they're like lauren that is not the way that we talk about white people and racial justice at all white people are not precious. Like that's the first thing you learn. Mm -hmm. 
the very first thing that you learn. And all of our work is about like undoing it and unlearning that. And so here I am um, <laughs> trying to maybe push back on that a little bit. Just a scotch. Um, I think we can get a little bit further with honey than vinegar. And then I'm just trying to like genuinely figure out why we're building an anti-racist movement on shame. Like I get it. Like I think at its core, like I think I understand it of like, yes, awful Mm. atrocities have happened. Yeah. And what future, what culture are we actively trying to build? And sometimes I think we get stuck in trying to address the hurts and harms while also trying to address the infrastructure of our relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where if we like lose the humanity of each other, if we lose each, each of our individual preciousness, not that mm-hmm. one person is more precious than the other or one person has more humanity than the other, but if we're able to access that and actually say, oh yeah, we're doing this because we're human, because we love each other, because at the very core of your being is lovability. Mm-hmm. Oof. Like imagine what we could build. I guess too, you know, it's how do we do that while still paying homage to our pain, right? Like you wanna, yeah. right? Like you don't wanna negate pain or you know suffering you want to honor it which is something that one guest also said Mm -hmm. that if you're not truly honoring your pain you're lying yeah and you can't move forward so it's like how do we do both (laughs) the resma minicum quote that uh, white people need to be doing this work black people need to be doing this work And we probably should not be doing this in the exact same space because we have to heal. And to heal, we've got to tend to wounds that's our business and that's no one else's business. Um, Part of the problem with white people is that we've made it other people's business. And so one of the goals of the spillway is to make sure that we are making sure that it's our business and we're not making it other people's business that we're going to stay in our lane Right. And we're going to do our healing work to make sure that we can support the healing spaces for other folks too. Yeah. So in starting this podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, after probably, what was this? Four or five months of starting the spillway on social media, I realized very quickly that people need to hear these ideas and conversations in person like there needs to be an actual like doing of the thing Mm. um rather than this kind of passive oh i just scrolled past your thing or i like kind of get it or i don't get it Mm -hmm. uh there's this there's a lot of seeing that's happening now we've got to do a lot of talking and then we can go into the do see here Mm -hmm. do that kind of like Mm -hmm. learning model so i have asked one of my favorite people in the entire world (laughs) She's ridiculously smart. She is hilarious. If you have an opinion about an author, she as well has an opinion about that author. (laughs) She has probably read that author and could maybe quote a couple of good book titles uh, that you should be reading. She has the heart 
of like a whale. Like it's massive. And she cares a great deal about me. Mm. And mm-hmm. so she has been incredibly patient and compassionate on this journey with me as I was like, hey, Jenny, I want to help white people. <laughs> she was like, what? You want to do what now? I know. Uh, and so talking with her uh, about race and racism as two white people has been both super um, educational for me, um, but it's also changed the way that I approach this work. Uh, especially because they come from academia where everyone likes to talk in 14 syllable words and say, uh, you know, 20 words when they could have said one just to say yes or no. Mm. And Jenny loves to cut through the bullshit. And so I also felt like it was important to have Jenny here too, because she's a bullshit cutter. And we'll just say, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. I don't get that. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? Uh, so it grounds me in this really lovely way. And it also, I think, elevates the work. I think it elevates mm. it because it makes it more accessible. It makes it more approachable. And it makes mm. it more personable because of that. So really, I should be thanking you. <laughs> no. Um, but thank you for joining me so much. Thanks for having me. It's um, very, it's an honor. Please tell me about this honor. Tell me about it. <laughs> Tell me about the honor. So essentially, so when you started this journey, I was like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> why this way? Why? But um, the more that I, and I do care immensely about you. So you could basically, you know, anyway, we won't go there because it's inappropriate, but. <laughs> Oh my God, go there. What were you going to say? I was going to say, you could basically shit in my hand and I'd be like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. But this is, that kind of minimizes why we're here. The, um, the more I spoke to you about this work and the more you taught me about social justice, I became aware of this piece of my life that was missing, mm. um, this piece of understanding that I didn't have. And my ability to be like, oh, I don't know. I'm not saying I'm just, no, Mm-mm. don't see that. And uh, I think it happened a lot too, when we were talking in terms of your gender and gender in general, that's where really where it started. But then when you mm. began on this path to help white people and you founded the spillway and I was you know, engaged in your work and we were talking about it as it was happening sort of in real time, I realized how much I avoid discussions about race and racism in real life. You know, Instagram is one thing, but being an actual conversation about it because I had so much shame and self-hate and, you know, ignorance about the history of race and racism and, you know, my own my own background as a white person and that I realized that, oh, I really, I really need this work because originally I was just going to support you because you're you and I love you. And, but then I was like, oh no, but I need help. (laughs) Help me. So, um, and I believe in the message, you know, I also think the most important piece for me was to take the responsibility of white people healing off of the doorstep of people of color. 
mm-hmm. and into into a space where it's you know like away from they've they don't need to be our healers you know they've had they have enough and and are doing enough and it's our turn right. so to do our own work right and that was the only reason that i felt that it was okay to start the spillway was because folks of color had said repeatedly and have said repeatedly for decades if not mm-hmm. centuries white people i need you to start loving yourself because once you love yourself this was james baldwin once you start loving yourself the black problem so to speak goes away right the existence of blackness goes away because all that that was was you not loving yourself right and then that turns into like Bayard rustin what is loved can be cured love right. yourself fix it just fix it just fix it um and so yeah this is white people work this is the work right. that white people have to do and I, and i think that that was the thing that i kept hearing in social justice spaces, well, white people have to do the work. White people have to do the work. Okay, well, what was the work? Like you keep saying that, but then like, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Because white people and anti-racism work, uh, white people are just supposed to keep educating ourselves. Education is supposed to be this like silver bullet that's supposed to change everything. Um, But then like, as we saw in 2020, what happens after your book club ends? Or did like did people actually embody this? Did people actually change their communities or their homes, their neighborhoods? And I think in large part no, because then look at what happened a year later when we're looking at the elections uh, of school boards and the conversation of CRT. Like, I think people right. went back to this like, oop, nope, I need to go back to safety. <sighs> Uh, on this podcast, Jenny and I are going to take us along on some really, I think, some fun interviews, some challenging interviews, um, some sad interviews, <laughs> um, just, <laughs> but also some really uh, engaging interviews. Yeah. And I think in order for you, the listener, to to be on this journey with us and for you to feel like, yeah, we're, we exist between your ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want we want to exist between your heart too, within your heart too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it may be helpful for us to kind of locate ourselves, give a little yes. bit about like who we are, mm-hmm. maybe share a little bit of our racial origin stories. Because um, we're two very different people. We're very, very, very similar. Uh, mm-hmm. but we're very, very different. And that's mm-hmm. what I think makes our relationship really lovely. Um, so Jenny, I would love to hear kind of your racial origin story growing up in Texas and then moving to New York City in 2004 where we met each other mm-hmm. um, that kind of gap between uh, before 2004 who is that person who are you oh man who are you who are, who are you cool game we play um so first of all i'm white which just want to point that out i'm from texas born and raised spent my formative years there my parents were in their late 30s mid 40s when they had me one of them is hails from Europe and the other one came from the East coast. 
from an Italian American background. So very, very different folks living under one roof. Yeah, just a little bit. Just, just a smidge. I'm an only child, so, and we didn't live near family. So it was definitely sort of a time capsule of, of hurts and stuff. There was a lot going on. Um, in my memory, at least, it wasn't super happy, you know, childhood, but... In terms of of what we're talking about, though, I was raised to view myself as as an actual minority Mm. in the town that I lived in. I was raised to understand my place in the world as a victim, not just racially, but in every aspect. What do you mean by every aspect? So if something wasn't happening the way that I thought it should, or the way that somebody around me thought it should in regards to my advancement in life, mm-hmm. then it was because of someone else. Oh, okay. So um, it wasn't just something that happened or maybe I didn't put the work in or whatever the case may be. It was always because I wasn't seen as someone who needed help or assistance. Right. It wasn't your problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so at the same time, though, I was I was taught to not expect handouts, to not handouts, it's in quotes, mm-hmm. to not expect help, to not ask for help, to to keep everything close to the vest. I think the phrase was don't air our dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. It, it was asked of me why I couldn't just shut up, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, mm-hmm. so, you know, all of that sort of informed how I viewed the world. So with that lens in mind, when I... I went into school, race and racism uh, was presented in a way that placed them in the past. So they were taught in history classes. And so mm-hmm. we were, it was the framing was like, this happened a long time ago before you were born, before your parents were born. So, you know, it's, a, it was awful and, you know, things were bad, but now it's over so we can move forward. And even though all of this is sort of going on, I had most of my friends were Hispanic mm-hmm. um, or or people of color. I think I had the whole like, I don't see color thing maybe going on. My my worldview was super narrow. So not only was I sort of like prisoner to this house of three people who didn't understand each other and there was a lot of turmoil, but I was also, you know, in a schooling system that focused on race and racism as a past thing that happened and also um, didn't really take a wider view of the world. We had a lot of Texas history. And so my, yeah, my view of life was super narrow. It wasn't very nuanced. That stuff didn't happen until I moved to New York city. Yeah. I definitely get that of feeling the colorblind lens. Mm -hmm. (sighs) My parents rocked that one so hard, mm-hmm. so hard. I, I'm white. I grew up in Colorado and one of the earliest stories that I ever heard about race actually came from an incident with my grandpa. My dad was a basketball coach mm-hmm. and before the kids came in the picture, they were bringing some of the, uh, the basketball troop. What are they called? Basketball team team thank you the team the team the truth i love that you turned it into like, <laughs> ooh, ooh. like a, uh, a theater so thing the troop came over the troop 
And they were like, can we stay at your house, Grandpa? <laughs> uh, uh, literally, that's what happened. Uh, so my dad was bringing a basketball player over to uh, their hometown. They lived like six hours away. Um, and they were like coming in for a night or something. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh, he just needs a place to stay for the night because we're here for this like conference or whatever. And my grandpa was like, no, he can't stay here. And they're like, why? What are you talking about? Oh, because he's black. And I didn't really, like, I didn't know that about my grandpa until, uh, like, my parents told me this story. I just thought Mm -hmm. he was, like, this really angry, curmudgeonly (laughs) human who just, like, hated everybody. Everybody. It didn't matter. Yeah. (laughs) Except for the dog. Loved the dog. I mean. Tippy Joe. Love Tippy (laughs) Joe. Oh, Tippy Joe. Tippy Joe. Um, but just like hated people and specifically like didn't want this black person staying under his roof. Mm. Um, and so it was this like story that my parents told me to to like point out that they were good white people. One mm. of like, oh, I want to put this roof over this black person's head, or I want to show you that I am not my grandpa, or I am like, oh, I'm not my dad. Oh um, okay. to kind of like create this distance of me, mm-hmm. not him. Um, but also this like, oh, times have changed. Because I remember thinking like, why would grandpa say that? Like, that's just bad. That's racist, grandpa. That that was always the response. Oh, times are just different. The times were just different then. Uh, as if mm. the, it was okay then. Right. And with that, there was this uh, really intense kind of political charge that ran through our family. And I think a lot of that happened to do with my dad having this fairly prominent public position with a local public school district and so our family was constantly under this microscope of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable Mm. so we were we were taught very early and very clearly you do not see color just don't see color like that was just the uh the political thing to do was to just see people as people but not as individuals Mm. that makes sense there was um respect their blanket humanity but not their individual differences it it, it was like holding that but also at the same time i'm holding that uh within our family photo albums there are family members in blackface and there are people laughing at it because you know it's just a different time right so holding these multitudes at the same time left for this really kind of confusing but very clear uh, kind of narrative that race and racism is something you just don't talk about. Um, Or when you do, you just say, oh, it doesn't happen anymore because it's a different time. (laughs) It's like, oh, now that we're in the 90s, now that we're in the odds, it's just going to be completely different. And I'm like having these conversations or not having these conversations uh, with family, both like immediate and extended in like a, a like intensely segregated area. Like if you, there was this town and if you imagine a donut around the town, around the perimeter was where all of the white people lived. Um, and, and inside the donut, the donut hole is where all of the folks of color lived. It, it was interesting that you would like live in this like predominantly white area. And then when you would go into town to go to Walmart, to go to Kmart, go to the movies, that's where you actually saw people who looked different from you or looked mm. differently. And yes, it wasn't like a completely like 50, 50 split. Um, like the town that I, 
the neighborhood that I grew up in was like 60. I looked at the the demographics on this. It's 65% mm. white, 30% Hispanic, 5% mixed race, and 4% native black or Asian. But then in the city was 44% white, 49% Hispanic, and 6% mixed race. So it was almost like it switched. So yeah, it was like, we're having these conversations, but white flight has also already occurred. Mm. And so we now don't have to have these conversations because we've made it to be that way. That was kind of my upbringing up to 2004 and moving to New York and then everything immediately and rapidly changed once you go and just stand on the corner of 71st and Columbus for 30 seconds. Right. You see more and different people than you've ever seen before in your entire life. Uh, And it's magical and Mm -hmm. important and transformative and educational and humbling. Mm-hmm. Feel a little eighteen-year-old going, "What the world looks like this? <laughs> it's amazing." It's amazing. There was this really kind of peculiar moment that I've had in my life that I don't know if a lot of white, other white people have shared in. Uh, for a very long time, I worked at a nonprofit uh, supporting LGBTQ young folks. Mm-hmm. And for about, I want to say maybe half of the time that I worked there, I was the only white direct service provider. And the majority of our clients and the young people that came through the doors uh, were and are youth of color. And so I had this really interesting and unique experience of sometimes being the only white person in the space. And this would go on for months, if not years, where I came to understand kind of the the kind of preciousness that comes with being the only in a space when it comes mm-hmm. to race. And there were times when I was asked to leave spaces because not because of who I am, but because of who I represented or because mm. who I reminded people of. Mm-hmm. Or I would ask permission to come into spaces because I knew that it wasn't about me, but it was about the color of my skin for some folks that they just needed a healing space mm-hmm. and actually just to not see a white person that day right? Um, because there had been some pain that had happened. Uh, there were also other times where I got to be the spokesperson for all white people. Mm-hmm. And they would say, Lauren, why do white people or Lauren, what are white people doing with Lauren? What are, why are, who are, mm. and I would not trade that experience for the world mm-hmm. and that it really made me exist and live in my whiteness in a way that I could not hide from it. I could not say, oh no, I'm not white. I couldn't, I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't live in this colorblind world that my parents had tried to raise me in. Mm-hmm. I really had to lean into it. And so it really uniquely situated me to see race in this very different way. Um, but in that, uh, there were some white people that were on staff. And we would talk a lot about what it meant to be white uh, and what it meant to be white and showing up in that space. And we would use these like credentialing, these words, these actions, this rigidity in thinking um, sometimes to make it safe to have conversations and safe in in air quotes here um, because we wanted to make sure that we weren't hurting people. Mm. Um, And sometimes hurting people meant also like hurting ourselves, um, but we weren't naming that. Right. We were just wanting to make sure that we were doing as much work as we could on the outside to make sure that we weren't hurting folks of color on the inside. Mm. Um, but to do that, we were completely burning ourselves at both ends mm-hmm. 
um, to make sure that we were like being the good white as much as possible. And it was mm. fucking exhausting. Mm-hmm. It was exhausting um, because I didn't think about my own humanity in the process. Right. I was so wrapped up in another person's humanity um, that I didn't care about myself. And so it wasn't sustainable. And in that, if it's not sustainable, then it's actually not justice. Right. Right. Also, like, who is it serving? Right. Who is it actually serving? And then is it, oh, are you just doing this out of guilt? Right. I think that that's really where the spillway came in and that I kept hearing, no, 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 no. Way people will always be racist. Always, always, always be racist. And it didn't make sense to me because I don't know what we were fighting for then. Because I kept on this one side seeing me being this this quest to be the good white person where I wasn't causing any harm to -hmm. any person of color ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was completely negating myself and then thinking, oh, wow, it's always going to be this way. It will forever be this way. Mm. And then I found out that white people are going to become a racial minority by 2045. And then that really hit me twice of, well, wait, then it can't be that way. Because what happens when there are more folks of color in the U.S. than there are white people, then how we're like defining racism as power plus discrimination, uh, racial discrimination equals racism, Mm -hmm. then social power will shift. Social power will inevitably shift. Oh, wait, racism and race are also social constructs. So how can they be these socially constructed things but have these inherently defined characteristics? Like all of these pieces really started to kind of zap into my head throughout Mm -hmm. graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so bringing in my racial biography, bringing in um, my work history really helped kind of solidify the need for the spillway Mm -hmm. and to see white people as full, complex, nuanced human beings uh, who also need to take care of ourselves and themselves uh, in order to be productive and loving, full, rich, nuanced humans in the world. So this work is different. Uh, this work is uh, different than what we're seeing in current social justice circles and that this focuses on preventative work and this focuses on harm reduction in a way that focuses on healing rather than on education for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a preventative method of thinking about anti-racism um, for folks of color, but then harm reduction for white people. Because as the second tenant, I understand them as, as, as the second tenant of critical race theory is interest convergence uh, with Derek Bell. And that is uh, that nothing in terms of racial justice or racial equity is going to happen unless white people sign on board. Um, white people have to understand that racism also impacts us. Right. And part of it is by its ability to completely eviscerate our own humanity. Completely. Yep. yep. Um, and so through that, that is harm reduction for us. This is a harm reduction service for white people. And that service looks like listening to this podcast uh, communing with the podcast, but also like sharing in the community and the online spaces um, as much as we can start. And then from here, trying to figure out what we can then build if there's additional things that we need to build in order to start building a positive, compassionate, patient, understanding, and empathetic root 
not a branch, not a tentacle, a root, something that's going to stay within white culture. Because to me, white culture is already incredibly textured and incredibly varied and massive uh, and sometimes beautiful and inspiring and sometimes terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just want to see a little bit more emotional connectivity within it. Yep. If you could say one thing to white people right now, what what would it be? What would be the most important thing at this moment that you feel you need to say to them? Shit, Jenny. Um, one thing. So much of white history uh, and of white ancestry is about fleeing pain. A majority of white people in the U.S. can point to their family lineages and look to Europe and say, we fled something. We were running from a hurt Mm -hmm. and we landed here and we never fully acknowledged that hurt. Mm -hmm. And we kept running with it. And what I want to say is, come here, just bring it here. Mm -hmm. Just bring it right here. You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to flee anymore. Bring it right here. Mm -hmm. It's over. You don't have to. You don't have to. The only reason that you would have to is if you're not ready yet. And when you're ready, we're going to be right here. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're not ready today or tomorrow. But when you are, we're going to greet you the exact same that we would have if we were to greet you today. Mm. But we don't have to hold on to that pain anymore. That intergenerational trauma, that hurt, the historical trauma that we hold. We didn't choose that for ourselves. Mm. Uh, And so let's stop choosing it as an identity. Let's stop choosing it as a personality trait because it's not serving those around us and it's not serving us. Um, yeah. It's lovely. Thank you. You're fucking lovely. You're fucking lovely. Uh, I'm so excited to do this with you. I know. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is.